Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning we're going to be doing a text from uh, a book of the Bible that usually isn't preached on a Sunday. It's uh, usually relegated to Bible studies and some other things. Some of those books are are just a, a bit difficult to dive into and interpret. We're not going to go through a heavy bit of introduction interpretation, but the book is this. It's the Song of Solomon. But I believe that it provides a perfect segue between the series that we preached last week, which was called Growing Young, and then the series that we're going to begin next week, which is called Passion. Because young people tend to have passion, right? I think it's a great segue. So over the weeks ahead, we'll be uh, talking about what it means to be passionate about God, passionate about his house, passionate about his people, passionate about the groom, passionate about the bride, passionate about all those kinds of things. And that's kind of where we're feeling that we're going to be wanting to go because disciples of Jesus should be passionate disciples. Am I right? And we want to kind of really uh, peg on that theme uh, this morning. So the title of the message this morning is called Prelude to Passion. I suspect that there's no book of the Bible which harbors both the themes of youth and passion like the Song of Solomon does. Or in Hebrew, it's called the Song of Songs. It's which kind of means, it's a Hebrewism, which means the best song ever. It's that kind of thing. Now, one of the reasons that the Song of Solomon perplexes people uh, as to its place in the Bible is that the book is overtly an erotic love poem that describes a rather sensual relationship, uh, a sensual relationship between a bride and her bridegroom, between Solomon and one of Solomon's young wives, which in actuality, uh, uh, and I'm sorry, I mean, oh, it's an ancient Semitic, sensual, romantic piece of poetry, right? Now, when I was in seminary, one of my studies, well, actually my major was really in uh, biblical languages. That's, uh, I have a master's degree in that. And in, in, in preparation to do that, I had to read a lot of other ancient literature other than Hebrew ancient literature. Let me tell you, when you survey the literature of 500, 600 to 1000 BC, there is nothing anywhere on the planet quite like this love poem, which is amazing. There's a genius in God. Uh, the book of Job is another one just like it. So this book has a history of controversy, but it doesn't have a history of controversy inside Judaism. Interestingly enough, this is fascinating, the Mormons don't allow it in their Bible. Huh? It offends them, okay? There's only one reference to God in the entire book, and that's in chapter 8, verse 6. And that's another reason that people tend to say, well, what's this book doing here in the Old Testament? But having said all of that, all right, uh, it was the ancient rabbis that insisted that Song of Solomon be included be included in the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. And ancient rabbis were hardly like, like imagine uh, the rabbis that you see in the movies, you know, and the life of Christ and all those kinds of things. Or imagine uh, the Orthodox rabbis in Israel or in, in Brooklyn. Like they don't look like Michael Buble. 
I mean, they don't look like a romantic bunch of guys, and yet they insist that it be included in the scriptures. Uh, so uh, one of the famous uh, commentators in, in Judaism is a guy by the name of Rabbi Akiba, one of the greatest of the ancient Jewish authorities. And this is what he said, the world was not worthy of the day in which the Song of Solomon was written. That's, how, that's the esteem with which they held this book. Now, this is kind of interesting because it's out of character with the way we perceive that culture, right? A romantic kind of sensual love poem. Uh, but the reason why that the rabbis felt this way is that the song has always been viewed as a description of the passion and the passionate relationship between God and his people Israel. Are you there? The rabbis saw it as a description of the passion of God for Israel and the youthful passion of Israel for her God. Taking up that theme, the early church always viewed this song as a description of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, which is who? The church, right? And it can be inter interpreted as a romance between Jesus and the church, as well as a romance between Jesus and each of us individually as well. Huh? And so it's an important book, and we're going to approach a piece of it today. As a matter of fact, for me to do this, you need to know this. I'm Eastern European. Eastern European guys, whether in the cinema or in literature, are not known for being extensively romantic. Huh? And my wife can vouch for this. I had the privilege of, of asking my wife to marry her over a tuna fish salad sandwich in the basement restaurant of Boscov's in Reading. And, <laughs> and I, for, I forgot a ring. <laughs> and here we are over 50 years later. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, right. What is it? Chuck Berry said, it goes to, goes to show you never can tell. Anyway. <laughs> so we're, we're going to take a look at one of the youthful impediments to the passion of having a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, follow me here. So we're going to have to do a little grammar in this message, uh, but it's important to do it. There are two words in the New Testament that describe our English word passion. One is almost always negative and describes passions of the flesh. But there's another word, and that's almost always positive, and it's very often translated in the English versions as zeal, okay? As a matter of fact, it's, it's the, the Greek word from which we get the English word zeal, zealos. Uh, Jesus uh, had zeal for the house of the Lord, right? When he was uh, expelling the money changers from the temple, the disciples looked at him and, and were reminded that Isaiah said, when Messiah comes, he will be consumed with a zeal, which means a passion, a passion for the house of the Lord, which was the temple, or it could be the synagogue, or it could be one of the shrines. But the point is, where the people of God gather in a locale, Jesus was consumed with zeal for that. He went to the synagogue every week. So my definition here of passion is, passion is this, it's a compelling, powerful emotion that causes us to act, all right? Now, if you're Eastern European, that means asking a beautiful woman to marry you over a tuna fish salad sandwich in the basement of Bosco's restaurant in Reading. But there are more important things we can do to act. Jesus, full of passion, cleanses the temple uh, of money changers. 
But here's what I want to look at this morning. What about our passion? Our passion for God. And what about God's passion for us? The passage that we're going to look at describes how passion is affected when God himself appears, watch that, appears to have disappointed us or fallen short of our expectations of him. Anybody ever had that problem? Uh, really? I mean, I'm the only one, you know? Having passion is very difficult when the passion that we appear to have for God isn't reciprocated or doesn't appear to be reciprocated. We feel like God is an underachiever, right? So, but the principle we're going to look at is whether with God or people, disappointment is a passion killer. And we need to be really careful about that. I'll unpack this in just a second. And I want us to look at, at a particular point in the Song of Songs that, that I call the point of crisis in this love relationship between Solomon or the king and his bride. And let's turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and I want to begin reading in verse 2, okay? Now, you got to follow me here. Any of you have, who have read through, not just a portion, but have read through the Song of Solomon, you know, have a real hard time following the narrative, following the storyline. Am I right? I mean, who's speaking here? Well, who, well why, why is this happening here? Well, here's how, why you have a hard time. It's the only ancient literature I know that is a dreamscape. What do I mean? In other words, one of the reasons that people have a hard time making sense of the storyline is it's not a narrative, it's a dream. You know how in dreams you're in one place and suddenly you find yourself in another place and it's hard to connect the dots between this place and that place, but there's something thematic going on in the dream. Or am I the only person who dreams like that, right? And so, so it's a dreamscape and uh, it's like that. The love poem is a series of dream sequences on the part of the bride for her lover, her king. So I really believe that God gave, I actually believe this, that God gave one of the young brides of Solomon, a dream, and it was recorded and it became scripture, right? That's where this comes from. Anyway, in this context, the bridegroom is at least, this is what's going on when we pick up in, this, in this, these particular verses. Okay, so the bridegroom is at the wedding, at the feast, and he departs with his friends and she goes to her chamber and she's waiting for him to come to her. And so, but he departs and he goes with his friends, and then he departs his friends, and the scripture says he's merry with food and merry with wine, and he's coming to the bride's chamber to consummate the relationship. It's late. It's midnight. And he's tarried, or he at least appears to have tarried. He's not there yet, and she's waiting for him. But in this culture, watch this, it is his prerogative to tarry as long as he wants, because he is the king, right? And we pick up in verse two where the bride is speaking because he can take as much time as he wants, but she's a bit frustrated. This is a really human and kind of wonderful little picture here. Beginning in verse two, she says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. That's why we can say this is a dreamscape. She says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Something is going on in her, her unconscious, her subconscious. And she says, a voice, my beloved was knocking. Remember in Revelation 3, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. 
And then the groom begins to speak. And he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. Now, that's a pretty romantic, uh, a pretty romantic salutation going on there. But watch how she responds in verse 3. Remember, she's frustrated. She says, I've taken off my dress. So she had resigned herself to the idea that he was not going to come to her after all. So now she puts him off. She says, I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? Right? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? So like, this is the equivalent of an Old Testament bride saying, I got a headache. <laughs> all right. Verse four, then my beloved, she's, she's speaking now. She says, my beloved extended his hand through the opening. So now she has a visual, okay? And not only does she have a visual, she can catch the scent of him. And she said, my feelings were aroused for him. The King James says, my bowels were moved for him. It doesn't mean the same thing as it does with us. It, <laughs> it means I had butterflies in my tummy. That's what she's saying. And, and so she changes her mind and her passion is awakened, right? Verse five. So she says, I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. She's, she's got perfume on, my fingers with liquid myrrh. Uh, and, there, and she says, on the handles of the bolt. So his scent is on the bolt of the door, okay? His scent is on the bolt. Verse six. And she says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved, excuse me, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went, or my heart had gone out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. And so now she's out of the room and she's into the streets. Okay. Verse seven, watch this. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. Now, the watchmen are the religious guys of the city. They're always, in the ancient, in the ancient cities, watchmen were priests, uh, a specific order of the priesthood. So the watchmen who make the rounds of the city found me, and, and they struck me, and they wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl. It's a veil. She was veiled. Uh, like you see Islamic women today. She was veiled. Took away my veil from me. And she says, now suddenly, she's been abused, and suddenly there's these other characters on the, in the dream. Remember I said dreamscapes move like this? Okay. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you, fi if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. And the word love really isn't in Hebrew, it's, she's saying, I'm pining with grief because my passion arose and I went to open to him and he'd flown the door. Huh? And so, in verse 9, suddenly the daughters of Jerusalem respond to the bride and they say, well, what kind of beloved is your beloved? What, what, what makes this guy so special and almost beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved? And thus you adjure us, that thus you're so passionate for him right now. And so she begins a whole litany in the Song of Solomon where she's 
She's forced to consider and enumerate his qualities. And we're not going to get into that. She talks about thighs like pillars and uh, all kinds of very, very florid language. And she enumerates his qualities. And it's a magnificent piece. We don't have time for it this morning. But suddenly, he appears in the garden in another sequence. And when he appears, this is what's really interesting about it. There's no explanation There's no apology. There's no telling the story of why he had flown. There's no argument. There's nothing like that. He's just there for her. Isn't that interesting? Then we go all the way down to chapter 6, verse 3, and come together, and she says this. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And, of course, we sing that. All you old charismatics know that. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. His banner over me is love. Remember that? You know. All right. What's so funny, Arnaldo? <laughs> okay. Uh, I got to give you, uh, because we've sung this and we say it and we prophesy it and we do, I'm my beloved's and he is mine. I'm my beloved's and he is mine. So there, I, I want to give you just a little tiny bit of a grammar lesson that, that will point out something that will make that so much more rich if you can just track with me in it. And it's this. I want to give you like this really interesting little tidbit. In all the Western languages, like uh, English and Spanish and French and Russian and Polish and all those Western languages, the possessive case signals ownership. Okay, watch this. I say it again. The possessive case signals ownership. In English, possessive case means you put a, an apostrophe S and it signals that you own something, right? This is true in English and Spanish. We say in English, this is my car, right? That means I own it, right? This is my car. We say in Spanish, uh, este es mi carro, right? That means I own that car, right? But when she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine, ownership is not the issue because Hebrew and most Semitic languages don't connect the, the, the possessive case with ownership at all. It's very different. It doesn't signify ownership. In Semitic languages, uh, they understand possession. Instead of ownership, it's completeness or complementary, right? So then in Hebrew, you say, you don't say, this is my car. You liter- this is what it literally means. It means that car is unto me and to me. It perfectly complements who I am. I exist for it, and it exists for me. And that's just a fact of the Hebrew language. So when we say, my beloved is mine, we're saying he compliments me perfectly. Whatever my personality, whoever I am, he is perfectly for me because that's how Jesus is. Are you following me on this? It's it's just fascinating. Uh, And this is the conclusion of the bride who finally finds her groom. He says, you know, I've looked everywhere. I've challenged the daughters of Jerusalem. I've gotten beat up by the priests, uh, the religious people, and now I've found them. And you know what? There's no one else for me who completes me as perfectly as this, my bridegroom. And that's passion. Are you, are you there? That's wonderful. So I see a picture of myself as well as other people uh, that I've counseled over the years within the conduct of the bride in these verses. Because, you see, she's disappointed in him, and that creates the whole problem in the first place. Am I right? 
You're following with me, right? The groom is wooing her. He's attempting to gain entry into her life, into to, to their relationship. He's attempting to consummate their love. And he comes, and when he comes, and when he comes, he comes when he is ready. And at least in this culture, that is his entitlement. That's because he is the king. And when he arrives, he finds himself rejected. Huh? Or at least neglected. So ultimately, she responds to his advance toward her. Toward her but, but you know what? When she finally responds, he's no longer there. Huh? And he's flown the doorway. And I'm reminded of this scripture in Proverbs 8. I love those who love me, God says, but those who seek me quickly or early will find me. In other words, in this situation, are you capable of being distracted? Are you capable of being unoffended? If I come to the door, will you go? Irrespective of your disposition toward what I've done in your life or what I haven't done in your life, what you've expected of me, or whether you're disappointed or not disappointed, will you come quickly? Right? And so watch this. All of this could have been avoided if he had arrived when she thought he should arrive. Huh? That's us. Huh? All of this could have been avoided if she hastened to open the door when he was at the door, even though she thought he should have been there before. I don't know about you guys, but this is a pretty good uh, instance where I can relate to the bride in terms of my relationship with Christ. So all of this is to say that there's, there's a matter of timing in this thing called the kingdom. My, my point is this. Of all the ways that believers misapprehend God and his purposes, our greatest difficulty is yielding to God's timing. You got to hear me on this. It really is. In the Old Testament, the blessing that attended to the sons of Issachar were, was that they were men and women who understood the times and the seasons of God. It's one chronicles. It fascinates me that we have Christians framing out all kinds of predictions about this and that. Over the course of my life, I've heard more predictions and timelines set to the predictions. And I, I, I could count on one hand the ones that came to pass within those timelines. Because kingdom time is all about discernment and not about TikTok. Are, are you there? And so, so, and one of the reasons we discourage prophetic activity that contains timelines, we don't ban it, but is that the timing of God, it's not past discerning, but it's difficult to discern. I mean, of all the themes in the scripture, I mean, that you hear over and over again, and it's a lot of Christian songs, Every delirious song, I think, had it in it. How long, God? How long? Are you there? You know, I was expecting it then, but I'm still here. And my love is unrequited. My expectations haven't been fulfilled. So one of the bride's greatest difficulties in this passage is that the groom expected a devotional response from her at an inopportune time for her. Uh, I think that one of the more dangerous mantras and all of us, we harbor in our hip pocket. And I don't know about you guys, but I've done this. I just kind of, even if I don't say it out loud, I'm capable of saying, okay, God, I'll be obedient, but not yet. <laughs> yeah? Okay, God, yeah, yeah, but not yet. <laughs> 
Some of you have met Elliot Tepper, who uh, founded Betel. Betel's a major outreach of, of uh, NC4. Of course, Kent and Mary Alice Martin will be here from Betel UK next week, and Jason and uh, Tricia will be out in Mukunji next week, and uh, they'll be preaching. But before Kent and Mary Alice were ever sent from NC4 Bethlehem, we sent a guy by the name of Elliot Tepper. He, we're not his home church, but we did send him out. He left us for Madrid and all the rest is history. They're in 27 nations now. But Elliot graduated from Lehigh, was a championship wrestler, fierce wrestler. I look at his pictures when he was wrestling. It scares me. Anyway, it does. <laughs> and uh, and he, he was Jewish, the son of uh, an anthropology teacher from American University and in, in Washington, you know, the son of a, a very successful builder in, in Long Island, so he's part of the meritocracy, all that kind of thing. He was at Lehigh, he was a, an economics major, all those kinds of things. He was a privileged child. So Elliot, when he was at Lehigh, ends up being a Rhodes Scholar, goes to Cambridge, ends up at Harvard, getting a, his PhD from Harvard in economics, and he's the financial curator of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. He's walking along the Charles River in Boston one day, and he sees a German shepherd, two German shepherds wrestling with one another, one black and one white. And while they're wrestling, he's caught up into a vision of heaven. Like, this is sovereign. God does sovereign stuff with Semitic peoples, Hebrews, Arabs. I mean, he's just in the habit of doing that. So he's caught up in a vision. You can read this in his biography of heaven, and he can see heaven. It's beautiful. He, he describes it in the book, and he says, wonderful. And then the vision goes away. And he doesn't know about Jesus. He knows it's from God, and he knows it's heaven. And this is what he says. Yes, Lord, but not now. <laughs> and immediately he's swept into a vision of hell. <laughs> and the vision of hell was so disconcerting. I won't get into all the specifics. You can get the bio and read it. Uh, the vision of hell was so disconcerting that that night he goes and he drinks too much and he goes to a Mercedes showroom, someplace most of us can't darken, and uh, he puts his hand through a plate glass window and he's he has to go to the hospital to get stitched up. And the orderly at the hospital is a Christian and leads him to Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord, but not yet. You have to be careful with that. That's the bride here. She's saying, I'm, I want my groom, but not yet. I want him on my own terms. I don't want to consider the cost. Are you with me? It's that kind of thing. All right. This brings me to another fairly typical observation. The number of people who will spend obscene amounts of time and money and energy counseling and in seminars and various other therapeutic venues to see personal problems, family crises, marriages healed, spend all this time in my own office, avoiding any entrenched prayer life in their lives or in their lives together as a couple. Because my mantra is always like, do you guys pray together? And I ask them, how much do you pray? Well, once in a while, well, why don't you pray together? We don't have the time. <laughs> now, I'm not making fun. I'm really not. This is a peculiar Song of Solomon problem, yeah? The symptom of all this is as follows. Those who complain that God has neglected them are often those who have neglected God. I mean, there's no other way. Prayer is 101. 
I mean, all the other ministries, pastoral ministry, teaching ministry, uh, deliverance ministry, all those other ministries are wonderful, but if we don't pray, if we're not passionate about getting with God daily, getting into his presence, imbibing him, allowing ourselves to even become enamored of his passion toward us, all of the other stuff works negligibly, yeah? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't work, but it's a lot more work, right? And so there's this labor of love that should be, we should be enamored of, and that's our prayer lives, okay? All right, when the bride finally opens the door, there's no one there. She's disoriented, she's disappointed, she's aroused but unrequited, and in the very next dream sequence, she finds herself in a place where she should not be with people whom she should not be with at a time of night that she shouldn't be there. You follow me here? My father used to say to me, nothing good happens after 1130 at night. (laughs) And he was right because I found that out. Anyway, so they treat her like a lady of the night. Yeah. And watchmen, I said, were the religious people. They were appointed to, to care and protect, but but they had some religious chutzpah here. And it's interesting that she goes out of her room and meets two different troops of people. First is the, the, the watchman, okay? Uh, but, but then there are the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, this is why S, the song of SOS, the song of Solomon, SOS, anyway, becomes confusing, okay? If, if this were an historical narrative, it was a storyline and not a dreamscape, You could ask the question, why did the watchman beat up on the bride, but leave the daughters of Jerusalem alone? Huh? Yeah? Uh, But here's the the answer. You don't get to ask those kinds of questions of a dream. Huh? So suffice it to say this, when you're licking your wounds and pining with grief at God, there are two kinds of people who usually emerge in your life. One who are going to beat you up further and one who we're going to ask you to consider how great your God is. Are you there? So who are you going to listen to? <laughs> the daughters of Jerusalem essentially say, well, what kind of king is he? I mean, you're so, you're so grieved and so forth. Why did you reject him? What kind of king is this character? Tell us what makes him so special. Prayer allows us to tell God what makes him so special. There's nothing like adulating God first thing in the morning. Trisha and I, our habit is to get up. I get up earlier. She gets up a little bit later. And we have communion. The first thing we do is begin to sing. And we just sing psalms. We sing whatever it is that we're going to sing. And we just tell God what the bride tells the daughters of Jerusalem. And from there, my day is a go. Are you with me? Now, I know some of you have kids, and we didn't do that when we had young kids, but we, we found some way to get her done, you know. <laughs> what kind of king is he? See, Larry the Cable Guy probably prayed. Anyway, okay. <laughs> what kind of king is he? Tell us what makes him so special. And they lead her into an evaluation of the Lord, an enumeration of his wonder, and it concludes with this statement. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. I am unto my beloved, and I am for him, and he is unto me, and he is for me. He's not against me. 
He perfectly complements me. He perfectly corresponds to me. And though I still don't completely understand why the heck he wasn't at the door, it doesn't matter. That's his prerogative. Yeah? He can disappoint me, but I am my beloved's and he is mine. And for that, for that revelation, I, watch this, for that revelation, I will yield to his creative neglect of me. Can I say that again? I will yield to his creative neglect of me. There is a principle of scripture of God's creative neglect. When God doesn't appear where he's supposed to appear, where your expectation of him is this, and it's not exactly the way you would expect it, and you've got to ride out a storm that you hadn't considered that you'd have to ride out. Jesus sleeping in the boat. Why are you sleeping? The disciples say to you, how can you be sleeping when we're perishing? That's what they said to him. And then he calmed the storm. Paul Stewart sent me something. And he says, look, he says, when a ship needs to anchor, they usually choose a safe harbor. It's, he's a sailor, by the way. He was in the Navy. He's a lifer in the Navy. He said, it's, a safe harbor is not too deep, and the harbor is usually protected from winds and storms. And the ship has an anchor that's strong enough to weigh the ship and the crew and, and ensures that the anchor is safely set so the anchor of the ship will list here, hither and yon. He says, but if the storm is bad, all right, it is usually safer for the ship to go out to sea than to stay in the harbor because the ship is designed to weather the storm. Huh? When I accepted Jesus Christ, I got a new design. I became designed to weather the storm. How about y'all? Yeah. Hello, ships. Yeah. Ships happen. <laughs> Navy ships that are seaworthy leave harbor when a big storm is coming rather than get caught in the harbor where the anchor can slip away. Spiritually, what do we do? When we head out into the storm, or if we get caught in the storm, what does Jesus want us to do? Hmm. When Jesus was in the storm, he walked on the water, he fell asleep in the back of the boat, and he was calm in the storm. And then he was awakened by the disciples, and what does he say to them? Oh, you of little faith, how long will I bear with you? It's just a storm. Story of my life here. Anyway, just in closing, the Song of Solomon poem never explains where the groom went. It never explains why he went. It never offers her an apology. It never offers her an explanation. He never explains himself. He just allows himself to be discovered again and again and again. Right. So, in closing, sometimes God will creatively neglect us in order for us to, to, to enlarge our sense of his ultimate faithfulness. Huh? But we've got to ride out the storm. And we're safe because of him. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.